Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Wow. Does that seem extra loud? Okay. Maybe. Maybe it's just me. Um, it's not good to hear yourself sometimes. Well, thank you for being here. Um, we're, looks like we're a little light tonight. Uh, some, some people missing. Hopefully they'll be able to come back next week. Um, but I really appreciate everybody being here that's here and continuing to, to take the time out on Wednesday nights to come and sing and uh, hear from the Word of God. And it really is a joy and a privilege for us. And I hope that you guys look at it that way. And I, I assume you do because you keep coming back. Um, because the Word of God is so important uh, for us to stay connected to and, uh, and learning from. And so I'm really grateful that you're all here tonight. And we are still continuing through the book of Malachi. If you have your Bibles, please turn there to Malachi, and we're in chapter 3. And I'll give you a minute to get there. Maybe you're already there. Um, We've been making a lot quicker progress through Malachi than than I'm used to making through books of the Bible. Uh, So tonight, (laughs) it's going to be a little slower. Actually, we're only going to get through one verse. Um, but that's not because, you know, just because I want to slow things down. It's just how it worked out. There's just so much in it. It's verse five is where we'll be, and it's a long verse. It's got a lot in it uh, that we'll that we'll look at tonight. And uh, I, it's all, as is all of God's word, very important for us. But I think tonight we'll see, um, I think some good reminders for us as Christians of how to how to view God and how we should. Um, um, fear God. We'll be talking about that a little bit uh, tonight, and so it's a it's a good thing. And so let's take a minute and just have a word of prayer, and then we'll get started tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this evening. We thank you uh, for the privilege of coming together as as your children, as those who who you have bought with a great price, Lord. Uh, we thank you for our salvation that is found in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, for continuing throughout our Christian lives to teach us through your word, to uh, bring us knowledge of you and a deeper knowledge of the salvation that you have given us. Uh, Lord, that it continually uh, inclines our heart to you and, and our praise toward you. And we want to bring you glory and honor in all things. We pray for those that are not here tonight perhaps because of sickness, perhaps other reasons. Lord, we pray that um, they are in your care and that they will be able to come back. Um, and we thank you, Father, for, for this church, for the church family and all that you're doing here. Um, thank you, Father, for your love and your mercy and your grace. Bless us this, this evening in our time. Uh, may it bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, like I said, we are in Malachi chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse 5. So I'm going to go ahead and read verse 5 real quick, and and then we'll get started uh, looking into it a little bit deeper. Verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker, in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. 
the last passage that we were in, if you remember, we saw God's response to uh, his people, his belligerent people who accused him of not being just. God's people accused him of not being just. And as we get into verse 5 tonight, we'll see that uh, this just God is the one who's speaking through the prophet in verse 5. And he has already said what happens to those who are his in the last few verses. We looked at that last time. To, that what happens to his people. Uh, they are purified. They will be refined as with fire. Uh, and in particular, by the one who sits as a refiner. Okay, the Messiah is the one who will do the refining. Remember that Malachi said the Messiah would sit as a refiner and purifier. Uh, last time we were together, we read that. And the idea of him sitting show, in this way shows that he alone is sovereign over the task of purifying his people. Uh, the people do not refine themselves. They do not purify themselves. We don't have the ability to do that. We need the Messiah. And the Messiah alone has that authority. So for the scripture to describe him as the one who sits as a refiner, it's, it's proving and showing that he has the authority to do so. And according to verses 3 and 4 that we looked at last time, do you remember what the results of this refining of the people would be? What, what do you remember about that? What are the results of this refining? Verses 3 and 4. Okay, their, their offerings will now be pleasing to the Lord. Right, and there's one other aspect to this. Verse 3. Right, and then what comes from that purifying? Righteousness. They will now offer their gifts to the Lord in righteousness, and as was said, it will now be pleasing to the Lord. That's opposite of what it has been. Okay, that's, Malachi has been attacking that throughout this book. Uh, their their um, idolatry, their polluted sacrifices, uh, and, and specifically that God was not, not honoring the sacrifice, the offerings from their hands. But now in this, he's talking about this purification, and what that brings about is that the people of God will then be offering to him in righteousness, and it will be pleasing to him. Okay? We looked at that last time, but now, now God is, is moving on to what they had asked about in chapter 2, verse 17. They asked, where is the God of justice? If you remember that. They, this is where they accused God of not being just. Uh, they wanted to know where that God was. Well, here he is. This is what Malachi is going to deal with tonight. And Malachi, he's been explaining that God Okay, the, the, the God of justice that they're asking about. He's been explaining that God first by his work of love and mercy in the refining and purifying of his true people. But now, to those who are not his, who, who do not repent and believe, to them he says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. Okay, and that's, that's really a frightening statement, <laughs> if you think about it. If you think about who God is, and that he's now saying, I will draw near to you for judgment. That's, that's frightening. Uh, the same God that is merciful to his people 
is the God of justice toward his enemies. His people receive mercy. His enemies receive justice. And for God to be just means that sin is punished. That the enemies of God will receive this just punishment. And to punish sin is to be just. If God does not punish sin, he would not be a just God. Now, this may cause a person to ask how God can forgive sins then. Would, would that not make him unjust if he simply uh, lets it go, just, just let the sin go? Yeah, well, that, that would make him unjust. He can't just ignore sin. Uh, that, that is not what he, what he does. Uh, we have this, really, we have this more fully explained to us by Paul in his letter to the Romans. If you have your Bibles and want to turn there in Romans chapter 3, he gives a wonderful clarification of this really most gracious gift uh, from God. If you look over in um, Romans chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 21 through 26. And now he explains how this can possibly work. This idea that the sin isn't ignored, it's not just overlooked, okay? It has to be dealt with. Um, So, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe... For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, here we see that God is he's righteous. Uh, he, he maintains his righteousness by how he deals with this. And God is he's patient with his people. We see that in here. God is completely just in the punishment of sin, and God justifies sinners through faith in Christ. And as I said, this is a a gracious gift from God to those who are His, but to those who are not, that debt of death because of sin is still resting on them. Okay, and that's, you know, what what we saw in that passage there in Romans is, is that God... Since the punishment for sin is death, and it has to be punished, he didn't just let it go to forgive people. What did he do? He punished Christ on our behalf. Christ was a propitiation by his blood. He satisfied the wrath of God. And it says that in doing this, God can be just because he punishes sin, and he's also the justifier of the one who puts their faith in Christ. So God maintains uh, his justice. He can't be accused of you know, just letting sin go or of changing the rules. He punishes his own son on our behalf 
and thereby remains just, and through that is able to justify those who put their faith in Christ. Um, but without that faith in Christ, that, that debt is still owed, and so punishment is still weighing on people who are apart from Christ. People who are unrepentant sinners are, still have that resting on them. And that brings us back to our passage and, and the Lord drawing near for judgment. Here we have God setting up a bit of a courtroom scene. Okay? God is the judge. God is also the witness. In our courts, the judge sits and listens to the charges brought against a person, and, and the, the uh, prosecutor calls witnesses to testify to the crimes of the alleged guilty party. And these witnesses help the judge to make a determination as to the guilt or innocence of the accused. And the judge doesn't know anything about the people or the circumstances until it's all presented. And then he has to make a judgment according to the law based on the facts and evidence laid before him by others. So my question here is that, that God is laying out this courtroom scene. What, how is this courtroom scene that that God is laying out here through Malachi, how is that different um, than our earthly courtrooms? What do you notice there in the beginning of verse 5 that is different than how courtrooms work with human beings? Uh, well, you might be able to look at it like that. Uh, I don't know that I would call it a reverse, uh, but there is an aspect of that that uh, God draws near to them. Yeah, he, they're not brought in by someone else. Okay, he's judge and witness. That's certainly different than, than our courtrooms. Um, the, the judge isn't, isn't a witness to the events. If the judge was actually a witness to the crime, he wouldn't be the judge over that case. Right? Um, so God is both judge and witness. He said, I will draw near to you for judgment. And he said, I will be a swift witness. No other witnesses or testimony is necessary. Okay, a lot of times in the courtrooms, a, a prosecutor or the defense will have multiple witnesses to try to prove their case. God doesn't need that. God doesn't need anyone else to come and tell him anything. He doesn't even need to hear from the guilty party. God knows everything. There's no necessity of any other witness. And so he says, I will be a swift witness. Nothing has to be laid before God to show a person's guilt because God knows his guilt better and more penetratingly than the sinner himself knows it. There are things we do, there are sins we commit, we don't even realize we've done it. That doesn't make them any less sin or any less of a violation against God, but God knows all of it. He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's a scary thing. This is a, it's a scary thing for God to say he will draw near for judgment. He'll be a swift witness. And he doesn't, it's not like our courtrooms. He doesn't need anybody else. There won't be anybody else, you know, uh, bringing evidence that you're somehow not a sinner before God. He knows it. And you look at what Jesus says about what God knows. In, in Luke 16, 15, he says, it says, And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. 
For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And what about Jeremiah? Jeremiah 17.10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Now, now God doesn't actually have to sift through and, and determine what's sin, what's not sin. That's just, this is language that we can understand, but God knows instantly. He knows everything. He, it doesn't take him time to search our hearts. He knows all of it. The point is there that we can't hide anything. He goes right to the depths, right to the, the deepest place within us, and he knows everything. Okay, we cannot hide from that. And no earthly judge can do this. Only the righteous and omniscient God of the universe can judge in this way and with no other witness than himself. Again, this is a, it's a terrifying reality for unrepentant sinners. So for these, these people that Malachi is talking to, to hear this, it, it, would, it would, should cause fear among them. Not only is God his own witness, but he says he will be what? A swift witness, right? What, what does that mean? What does it mean that God will be a swift witness? What do you think? It's not that, that it is happening right now. It doesn't mean doing it right now. And it's not, certainly not that God will, while he's doing it, he'll talk really fast. What, what do you think it means? No thoughts? All right. Well, really, it has the idea that, that when he comes to judge, that's it. There will be no more delay. The time is up. Uh, there's no more patience. Uh, there's no more time to, to come around. There's no more time to repent. Only swift final and eternal judgment. That's the idea of being a swift witness. When that time comes, whenever God determines that that is in the course of history, uh, he will come and that will be it. It will be swift. It's not going to drag out. Um, you're, you're not going to, people that are unrepentant sinners aren't going to be able to convince God that they're, uh, that they're not sinners. Uh, he will just be a swift witness. The power of his word, the truth of his word will be brought to bear on their lives. And the scripture talks about that in, in terms of it, it shuts people's mouths. You have nothing to say before a holy God who is the only witness necessary to the sinfulness of human beings. Then the Lord, through Malachi, says who he will be a swift witness against. And he lists, uh, he lists off several sins and and types of sinners, and that is people who are characterized by these sins. This is who they are. This is what they would be known for. Uh, and so look at that list with me in, in verse 5 of, of those that he will be a swift witness against. He says, against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me. Okay. Now, if you, if you aren't careful when you're reading this, you might think he's 
against the widow and against the fatherless. We have to realize that these are those people uh, that are oppressors of the widow and the fatherless. So he said those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, and then he lists the widow and the fatherless, those are lumped in with who is being oppressed. Okay? So, so the oppressors of hired workers, the oppressors of widows, and the oppressors of the fatherless. Uh, and these are they're all things that God has always been against. Okay? And, and that, that he's told his people not to do. They're, they're familiar with this. They know that these are sins against God. Uh, and there are also things that were going on and continuing to go on in Malachi's day. And of course, there are things that continued on after that. There are things that continue on today. Uh, this is, it's not just in his day. These are things that have always been a part of humanity since the fall. Okay, this is the nature of sinful men to, to do these things. So, sorcery and really other sins associated with it were forbidden by God. And these are, these are the practices of the pagans that God was driving out of the promised land before his people. Uh, that were, his intention was that his people would come in, he would fight their battles for them as they came in, and everyone would be run out. These pagans would all be run out, and they weren't to be left behind. But of course, the, the people of God were not always obedient in that, and they left people, and then those people end up being a thorn in their sides. And then here we are on Malachi's day, those people are still around, and, and they're meshing with and intermingling with these pagans and intermarrying with the pagans. It's just been a problem ever since because they did not obey God. Okay, we talked about that before. And they were to be driven out, and, and God's people were to have nothing to do with them. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy 18, we can see what God says there about his people going into the land and, and how this is to be viewed by them. And Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 12, says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. We talked about that before, about the idea of these things being an abomination. We spent some time on that. But these were all supposed to be driven out. God's people were not meant to have any part in these things. And here he is now, through Malachi, having to deal with his people with these very things that they're not supposed to be doing. And now he's saying, judgment will be coming against this. You know, this is, King Saul got himself wrapped up in these things, and, and God killed him. First Chronicles 10.13 talks about that, why Saul died. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. Okay, he got himself wrapped up in these, these things that are uh, idolatrous, these things that are against God. And is, is this stuff going on today still? You bet it is. That has never gone away. I mean, we, we can see it in our own town with all the different kinds of 
belief systems and everything in our town. That stuff is, is very prevalent. It's never gone away. Could it creep into the church either openly or disguised as something godly? Yeah, these things can, can creep in, and it does. Fortune-telling, astrology, tarot cards, etc., all these are they're being accepted in some places by professing, professing Christians. They may call it something different, but they're, they're practicing these things that are they're not innocent things. These are evil and sinful things. And we should not be fooled into believing that you can somehow Christianize some of these practices. You know, Christian tarot cards or whatever. You know, it, it, it's actually a re- real thing that goes on. Um, because we, we have the all-sufficient word of God for everything pertaining to life and godliness. We don't need to turn away from the word of God to find something else to get information from or whatever, whatever people are looking for in those things. So we have to be, we have to be on guard. We have to watch for that. We don't, we don't try to Christianize pagan practices and, and think that that makes them good. We can't fool God with that. And God is clear about sorcery. He said, he said in Exodus twenty two eighteen, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Okay, this is, this is a death penalty to practice sorcery. What about adulterers? Adultery, of course, was very rampant in Malachi's day uh, among the Jews, as it is everywhere today. Nothing, nothing has changed with man. Um, but we saw the, the people uh, in, the, in the previous chapter um, divorcing their wives and leaving them for uh, pagan women. Uh, there's, adultery was a huge problem, and it still is. Well, I, Here's another question. How did Jesus clarify the sin of adultery beyond what we typically think it means? Do you remember how Jesus clarified adultery? Yes. Yes, he looks at the heart. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, God sees the heart. The physical action doesn't have to take place. If, if someone is thinking about that action, you have committed adultery in your heart. And lest you think it only applies to men, it doesn't, okay? Anyone who lusts after someone else in this way has committed adultery in their heart. And this is, this is also used by Jesus in a broader sense to include all forms of sexual immorality. These are to be judged by God. God takes this very seriously. Hebrews 13.4, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And here we are. Malachi is talking about God drawing near for judgment for these very things. God is very consistent through the Scripture. He does not change, as we'll see next time. Um. So Jesus clarified that. It's not even just the physical act, which the people at the time that Jesus was dealing with thought they were, they were doing great in this area. I'm not, a, I'm not an adulterer. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Jesus draws their attention to their heart. And there's, there's nobody that can, can argue that point then. That includes everyone. Okay? Those who 
swear falsely okay, are on this list. And this is the person who is a liar, a person who makes an oath, most likely calling on the name of God as their witness, okay, and then doesn't keep their oath. Whether accidentally doesn't keep their oath or on purpose doesn't keep their oath, it doesn't matter. That, that person is a liar. Okay? They, they have sworn falsely. Um, you say, well, that, that isn't that bad, really, is it? You know, a lie? Is that really bad? Well, I think that's, when we have thoughts like that, that really shows the big difference between us and God. Because God said uh, through Zechariah, uh, chapter 8, 16, and 17, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. God doesn't view lying as a simple little thing. What is it that God says about liars in judgment? You guys remember? No thoughts. Okay, yeah. They will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Revelation 21.8 says, but... As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's, that's what awaits liars. False, the swearers are false oaths. That's what awaits them. And here, they understand that. And Malachi is pointing this out. He's got this list they're listening to about those who God is drawing near and who will draw near for judgment against. Okay, then he lays out several categories of oppressors. <clears throat> oppressors of the hired worker and his wages. Oppressors of the widows. Oppressors of the fatherless. Okay, people who do not pay the worker what they had agreed to or they, they maybe delay paying it or maybe even refuse to pay them altogether. God has addressed this with his people as sin. Um, but it's still happening. And Malachi's having to address it. So for the one that Malachi, that's hearing what Malachi is saying uh, through the Lord, or for the Lord, are, are hearing this, and if they're guilty of this, uh, you, know, you would hope at the time that it would, it would lead them to repentance. It should. In Deuteronomy, God lays this out and in this passage, also touches on the mistreatment of the sojourner in this way. Deuteronomy 24, 14, and 15 says, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And this, this is a form of, of theft, fraud, deceit. This is not something God's people should be characterized by. Because God will judge this person. And that was, that was one way a sojourner could be oppressed or abused. 
but there were many others. And the sojourner is basically, you have a question, yes? Okay, well, a sojourner is basically a, a foreigner living among God's people. So living in the land where they lived, in, in their towns where they lived, but they're a foreigner. They're not, uh, they weren't Jews, they weren't Israelites, but they were foreigners. Um, so we can think about that today in terms of um, people that are foreigners in our country, that, that aren't from here, that aren't citizens of here, per se. Um, if we want to make some sort of equation there, I would say that's what it would, that's what it would be equivalent to. And, but the, that was one way that a sojourner could be oppressed or abused, but there were many others other than, you know, not paying them the wages um, that they were due, uh, because they would have, some of them would have worked for some of God's people, and so they would be due the wages that they, that they had earned. Um, but the, the sojourner was also to be subject to God's law and, and could be banished for a violation or put to death just like Israelites could have been put to death for certain, for, for certain sins. Um, they also had to go through cleansing procedures for certain things. The people, were, the people of God were to make provisions for the sojourners according to what God commanded them as well. So they were to live with them. They were to, uh, sometimes when they, they um, harvested their crops and stuff, the things that were left behind were for the poor and sometimes for the sojourners. God talks about that. So there was to be some provision for the people that needed it. And in Leviticus, God lays out rules for his people regarding murder or if someone murders somebody or if someone kills another person's animal, um, etc. There are a number of things listed there. And he holds the sojourner to the same standard as his people. Leviticus 24 has some examples of this. I'll look at two verses in, in that chapter. The first one is verse 16, which says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And then verse 22 in Leviticus 24, You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Okay, so, so in terms of the, his rules about murder and about, you know, if you kill someone's animal, you need to replace that animal, those kinds of things. The sojourner was to be held to the same standard, to be held to the same rules. Okay, <clears throat> God gives, and God gives a pretty strong reason why he wanted his people to treat the sojourner well. And he makes it clear to the Israelites. And all the way back in Exodus 22, 21, here's what he says. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Okay, had they not been sojourners in Egypt? Yeah, for a long time. And were they not treated extremely harshly by Pharaoh? Absolutely. And that was something that Pharaoh was... Uh, punished for harshly. Uh, so, so to do the same thing to a foreigner or sojourner living in their land with them was something that brings about God's judgment. And God had given them clear commands on how they were to live with the sojourner. Um, and so they were, they were violating that. There were those who were oppressing them in 
whatever ways. It doesn't list all the ways that they were oppressing them, but, but they were. And that will not escape judgment, that person who is doing so. Um, widows and orphans are listed here as well in verse 5. Good question. How does God feel about widows and orphans? What's that? He cares for them. He loves them. Yeah, absolutely. And God not only cares for them, he wants his church to care for them. He wants his people to care for them. And when the widowed and orphaned are in need, God's people are not to ignore it. If we know of a need of widows and orphans, we, we do what we can to meet those needs. We care for them. And James even describes this care as, a, as pure religion in a good way. You know, a lot of times you people, hear people say, you know, religion is bad, but this is a scriptural way of describing it, and, and that's the language he uses. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Interesting that that would be a part of what he talks about in, in terms of being pure religion that the visiting of orphans and widows, and it's not just going and visiting and chatting for a bit. It has the idea there of meeting their needs, of, of taking care of them. And so that's clearly something that God is, is serious about. So for, for the person to, to oppress them, uh, again, brings, brings about judgment. And when Jesus was about to go to the cross, uh, he, he was telling his disciples that he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell them. And then he also made a differentiation between his followers and orphans. Jesus himself talked about this in, in John 14, 18, and 19. It says, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Okay, and that whole section about sending the Holy Spirit and how he's going to care for him in that way and that it benefits them actually that he, that he leaves so that the Spirit will come is a benefit to his people, but he describes it as, as him not leaving them as orphans. Okay, God hasn't left us. You know, the Scripture talks about his, God's children. We are adopted into his family. We are not left as orphans. So to oppress, harm, or take advantage of, or mistreat these ones loved by God is a terrible thing that also will make him a swift witness against the guilty. You might even look at this list that we had here in, in verse 5 and think, uh, boy, there's a lot of sins left out of that list. There's some, there's some things missing. should be a longer list, right? Well, it's true, but, but you can go to plenty of places in the Scripture to find different lists of sins. There are, there are several different places. Uh, and in fact, we're, we're so unsatisfied with a, with a common list of sins or the lists of sins that Paul even says in Romans that we are inventors of evil. Hey, we're not satisfied with just the things that we normally do. We, we sit around and contemplate, how else can I be evil? What else, what else wrong can I do? And that's how, that's how depraved sinners are. You don't do that? You might want to scoot over a little bit, Rosie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
No, we do. We do that. We don't think we do that. Yeah. I, we don't want to think of ourselves that way, Mel, but, but the Scripture describes us that way. The Scripture says that no one is good, not even one. Um, so it's not a good thing. Um, so I, I think God makes it clear, though, th- though we can think of probably a lot more things to be on that list, and we shouldn't read this and say, well, he left things out. Is it, It's only these sins he's going to deal with? It's, it's only these that he's drawing near for judgment? You know, murderers aren't on this list? You know, what, has God forgotten something? No, of course not. I think he makes it clear that, that really, that no person who's characterized by unrepentant sin of any stripe uh, escapes his judgment. And I think he makes it clear with the last thing that he said in verse 5. But I want to look at the whole verse again and talk about that last thing that I think wraps that all up. Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. That phrase, that last phrase, and do not fear me, I think sums it all up. Because everyone on that, everyone on the actual list here that Malachi gives is a person who doesn't fear the Lord of hosts. And the fear of the Lord is described throughout uh, the, pa- the pages of Scripture as the mark of true believers, are those who fear the Lord. And to not fear the Lord is to sin. It's sin in itself to not fear the Lord because we're commanded to fear the Lord. Deuteronomy ten twenty, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So to not fear him is sin. Also, to sin in any way is to not truly fear him. When we sin, we are not, we are not fearing God. When, if, a, if a person, an unbeliever, uh, unrepentant sinner is going about their day and the, all the sins that they're in, there's no fear of God there. And there are times, even as believers, where perhaps we forget about fearing the Lord. But by God's grace, uh, through faith in Christ, that sin is also forgiven. Uh, without faith in Christ, we would be stuck in that place and of no fear of the Lord and judgment. So to not fear him is sin. And we've talked about this before, about fear, uh, several weeks ago, I think. But I want to ask again, what does it mean to fear the Lord? For us, as, as Christians, what does it mean to fear the Lord? To be in awe of him? Okay. What else? 
Scared? Okay, I, I think that's where it gets a little different, right? As, as believers, those who are in Christ, we don't have to be scared of God. It really is more the idea of, of being in awe of him, and, and there's a, a level of reverence for him. But there's another thing that goes along with fearing the Lord. What else do you think it might be? What was that? Obey, what would you say? Yeah, obedience. Yeah, that, you know, those who are obedient to the Lord, that's a mark of someone who fears the Lord. To be in awe of him. Psalm, Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. What are some verses, I want to ask you for a second here, what are, what are some verses you might know about the fear of the Lord? Because the Bible is packed with verses about the fear of the Lord. Is there any that you can think of that you want to turn to and, and read for us? Verses about the fear of the Lord that have been meaningful to you in some way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That's pretty telling that it's a wise thing to fear the Lord. Yeah. What else? That's a good one. Okay. Are you talking about Proverbs 3? 3, 5, and 6? Yeah, there's, that, there's an aspect of, of fear there. And acknowledge him in all our ways is how it finishes off. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Trusting God, yeah. What else? Any other verses about fear that you've benefited from? Okay, well, for repentant believers to fear the Lord is a good and wonderful thing, okay? We should always fear the Lord, praising him, standing in awe of him. But for these people facing the judgment of the Lord of hosts, the scripture describes them as having reason to fear God in a different way. And I think it goes to what Eric was saying a minute ago. This this has the idea of being scared. Okay, Those who reject the work of the Messiah and remain in their sin have much to fear. I wanted to turn to a passage in Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter 10. And looking at verses 26 through 31. Okay, he's, he's just finished, the author of Hebrews has just finished talking about how believers should not forsake the gathering together um, as some are in the habit of doing, but they should be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, but here's what, how he goes on in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That that is the kind of fear you were talking about a minute ago. For those that are characterized by these sins, it is who they are. They are unrepentant. They, they do not fear the Lord. Uh, therefore, they have much to fear in judgment. And he is saying that he will be a swift witness against them. When the word of God is preached and studied, it teaches us to fear the Lord our God in the best sense. For us as Christians, when we read through the scriptures and we see about God's command about fearing him, don't be scared. Be in awe of him. Think about, our, it's meant to draw our, our thinking to him, to his love and his mercy and his grace in the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. And so we, we are in fear in that reverential awe sense, but not scared of him. Okay? That's a, what a blessing for us as Christians to to not have to fear God in that sense of being scared. And after Paul was converted by Christ on the road to Damascus, uh, he began preaching boldly. And with, with his preaching uh, of the word of God and the fact that he was no longer persecuting the church, okay, he was widely known as a as a persecutor of the church, people were terrified of him. Um, but now he's, he's come to faith in Christ. Okay? Christ. He encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, and everything has changed now. Okay? And he's now preaching the word of God. And what happens there is that the church begins to grow. And there's a passage that I want to look at as we close here to, to really bring encouragement to us. And we should notice what accompanied this growth, and we should be extremely encouraged by it. And it's in Acts 9, 31. Okay, this is, this is after Paul has been converted, and he's going about preaching the word of God. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Okay, the church multiplied through the preaching of the word of God as the people of God walked in fear of him. And what else accompanied that was the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the, the fear of God for us as believers is not something to be scared of. Uh, it's something to be, to be anchored in. And it, it brings us to all of God's promises including that, the fact that we are indwelled by his Holy Spirit. And that brings about comfort as we go through this life, which we need. We really need that kind of comfort. Um, so be encouraged. Be encouraged to be uh, in reverential fear of God. Uh, it's a good and wonderful thing. And Malachi is pointing out, as, as you may have noticed, that, you know, as we finish up chapter 2 and you get into chapter 3, he's talking about um, the, the messenger of the Lord that comes to make the way for the Messiah. 
uh, talks about the, the refining and the purifying. These are good things for his people, right? They'll be refined, purified, so that they will offer sacrifices in righteousness and it will be pleasing to God. That's good. And then he transitions to being the God of justice who is coming in judgment and he'll be a swift witness against those who are not his, those who do not fear him. And they commit sins of, of any kind in an, in an unrepentant way. They have not turned to the Lord. They do not fear God. And that's a scary thing. That's a fearful thing for those people. Okay? And then as we move on and we get into verse 6, the next time we meet, uh, he's giving something else that's encouraging to them uh, in terms of the fact that he is unchangeable. God is immutable. Okay? He, and that is something that should bring about encouragement for his people as well. Though Malachi still has some, some difficult things to say to the people, uh, there's also some very good and encouraging things here that, that true people of God can benefit from in a good way. But those that are his enemies should fear. Okay? Any questions or comments before we go? We're out of time. Okay. Let's close in prayer for tonight. Father in heaven, thank you again for this time and thank you for the, the words that we have here uh, that you spoke through Malachi and that have been written down. And Lord, I thank you, Lord, that we can learn from this about the fear of the Lord, that you have commanded it, that we should fear you, Lord, but we as those who are in Christ do not need to be scared, but Lord, that we should be in awe of you. The, f- the fear of the Lord should cause us to be obedient. Lord, it should cause us to reflect on your grace and your mercy and your great kindness. It should continually lead us, Lord, to repentance of sin that may still remain in our lives. But we thank you, Father, that, that Christ, through his blood, was the propitiation for that sin. We thank you, Lord, that you are a just God. But we thank you, God, that through Christ, you don't give us justice. Lord, you give us grace and mercy and eternal life. May we glorify you and honor you in everything that we do. Be with us, Lord, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.